I'm Amy Jo Martin. Welcome to the Why Not Now show. You know that thing you've been thinking about doing? Yeah, that one. Why not now? Have you ever actually taken the time to ask yourself, what's stopping me? Let's talk it through. This is your chance to give that idea the attention it deserves and take action. Each episode, I have a chat with a fascinating person from entrepreneurs to athletes, celebrities, my parents, rocket scientists, and all walks of life. We talk through a critical time when they've asked themselves, why not now? We dissect that day or even that moment, step by step. Quite the show today. We have Tony Robbins and my husband, who is also the producer of the show, Richard Gruer. I'm excited for you to hear from him. It's the first time he's ever been on the show, so stick around. Make sure you check out our chat, and we have a special surprise at the end. So Tony Robbins' first up, you probably know him as either the best-selling author, the guy that runs around the globe. He's been in 100 different countries and impacted 50 million people with his training seminars. He is this life and business strategist slash magician. The guy is incredible. He's written books. He's a philanthropist. And I had the chance to go and attend one of Tony's events in San Jose last November. There were 10,500 people in this event. And it went for three days. Sometimes we would be in this venue for 15, 16 hours, very little breaks, just intense. And it was equal parts, rock concert, dance party, and business life strategy takeaways that I'm still applying to my life on a daily basis. And I will, I'm sure for the rest of my life, we do that in our household here. Richard, my husband went with me and he kind of notes it as one of the most liberating experiences. So There is something about this guy that just is, it's pure charisma and it's untouchable. So Tony has a new book coming out. His son reached out last week and within a few hours, I found out I was going to get to interview Tony. And so I'm jamming and cramming for this interview. I did read a portion of his new book. It's called Unshakable. They were kind enough to give me an advanced copy, and there is a special offer at the end of the show if you want to get a copy for yourself. Um, It's snackable size compared to his previous books. His last book was like 670 pages, so it's not that. This is about 200, and it turns out that the topic of this book is highly relevant to me and my life right now. In fact, it's a why not now of mine. So in some areas of life, I have my shit together and some I don't. One that I would not say I am uh, soaring at is having a long-term financial plan. And, And what I mean really is investing in the stock market. So the blocking and tackling of, of some of the things involved in financial planning I've done, but when it comes to actually taking the leap, 
I am paralyzed. I'd rather just basically have my money under my mattress and sleep with it there, just knowing that it's not going to go anywhere. But that's actually not smart at all, as we all know, because you're losing money if you just have it in a savings account because of inflation and it could be working harder for you. So I've done a ton of research, talked to a lot of people, and I still find this very difficult to take action when it comes to putting my money into the stock market. So I talk this through with Tony and I get super vulnerable with him. And I can honestly say after this conversation, which was a few days ago, I have taken some pretty big steps. So I'm a little bit proud. And um, we talk about a lot of other things. We talk about the current president. We talk about the past presidents, uh, many of which Tony has advised. And I talked to Tony about this kind of ongoing theme that um, you've heard if you've been listening to the past few episodes, and that is how can we find empathy at a time when it appears to be nowhere, <laughs> given how divided our country is, but also how can we create it in really unexpected times and kind of reverse engineer it? You know, I am a fan of having healthy tension conversations, as long as they have respect underneath them. I think that a lot of progress can be made from those types of conversations. So Tony shares some really profound insights from his experiences with world leaders and um, things that he thinks will help uh, this, this division and creating a little bit more unity and progress. We talk about his why not nows. Uh, we talk about a lot of different things. So enjoy. I'm pinching myself that I get to say right now, here's Tony Robbins. How we spend our days is how we spend our lives. For me, being able to design my own day is a non-negotiable. As many of you know, I'm a bit of a time management nerd. So when I find something that allows me to be more efficient and more effective, I want to share it with everyone. So here's the scoop. I have a new tool in my productivity tool belt, and I'm a bit obsessed. It's monday.com. My team and I have never felt more organized, and I have a new sense of perceived control. My to-do list is no longer the boss of me. I feel more in control because every project, initiative, date, and task is captured and organized in one place. And my team is in the loop and involved every step of the way. With Monday.com, it's like I have a brand new operating system. There's no long list and everything has its own home, its own deadline, its own team member that's assigned and associated, and it's color-coordinated. We all have multifaceted jobs and businesses. There are many components to my business, and each and every one of them has its own compartment. Each division is always one click away. For example, my team and I have a dedicated board for this very podcast. Did you know there are 28 steps involved in getting one podcast to air? It's the same exact process every time. And it's a system. We have the various key steps mapped out as micro tasks. And this allows for my team and I to stay in lockstep every step of the way. With Monday.com, I can zoom out and see the big picture, a roadmap view from 30,000 feet. And a moment later, I can zoom in 
and focus on a specific microtask within a project, within a division of the company. I could go on and on about the features that Monday.com offers, one of which is I've built my social media content calendar inside of Monday.com. I finally have one that I actually use, that I like, and it's embedded into my overall Google calendar. Another feature that I love is the Google Doc integration. You know I love a good spreadsheet. I can pull them into monday.com and edit them right there versus having 97 tabs open on my computer. If how we spend our days is how we spend our lives, then I can't think of anything more important than using the time in our days wisely. Head to monday.com if you want a free trial. And let me know on social media how it goes for you. Shoot me a DM. We can swap tips and tricks. Welcome to the show, Tony. How are you doing? Very well, I'm Joe. How are you? I'm great, thank you. And um, I have to thank you. I was at the Unleash the Power Within in San Jose, and it was incredible. That venue, I hadn't ever seen you live before, so I just have to thank you for that, as does my husband, who said he was he was liberated. So, Oh, that's props. really wonderful. It was a blast, wasn't it? We had 10,000 people rocking for four days and nights. Pretty crazy. Oh, my goodness. I really enjoyed it. Incredible. Yeah. And one of my favorite moments was when you got your super soaker out. And it was just madness. <laughs> Who knows what time it was at night at that point. But yeah, yes. quite the like energy. A mosh, like a mosh pit there with all the people with ovations and dancing. It's pretty crazy. Oh, Beautiful it was, though. It was epic. So hopping right in, will you share a time when you had to ask yourself, why not now? We'll dissect it and kind of just talk through that day, that moment, hour, whatever it might be. It can be big, small, personal, professional, you name it. Uh, well, you, you warned me in advance you wanted to ask this of me, and it's kind of funny because if you talk to anybody that knows me personally, my wife, my family, and my core associates, they'll all tell you Tony's favorite word is the three-letter word. It's now. But my question is not, you know, why not now? My question is when would now be a good time, <laughs> which has a presupposition in it, right? Um, and so I don't know if the very first time of that actually occurred. I'll give you two quick examples. One um, is not kind of planned. It was, I, you know, I grew up with a younger brother, five years younger, younger sister, seven years younger, and love him to death. And I had uh, a mom who was a force of nature, who I love to this day. She's passed away a very long time, and but who was also very violent. She didn't, she wasn't violent by nature. She was just an alcoholic and also used prescription drugs. And so um, there was a day on Christmas Eve when she, I just got back from working out. I was a young kid, and I was excited about my progress and. She decided I was getting too big for my britches, and then she told me I was lying about things and poured liquid soap down my throat till I threw up, and I wasn't lying, um, and then chased me out of the house with a knife. I knew she wasn't going to kill me, but the why not now probably was, maybe now's the time. <laughs> now's the time that I need to, I'm not going to go back in that house. This is, I'm going to go start my life. I, I can't live like this anymore. I've got to figure out what the hell to do. And so it kind of started my journey. And I went and slept on a mountaintop nearby. And then it rained. And so the next day I slept in a, in a friend of mine's laundry room. And I worked as a janitor. And I started to put my life together. So it was a it was a seminal moment because I've not left and stayed in that environment. Uh, I don't think I would have been killed or anything of that nature, obviously. But I would have. I don't think that I would have had the life that I've had. That was a seminal decision. But I think to maybe a better example might be Early in my career, I uh, I had 
I built a certain level of skill and I figured out how to model people, how to figure out what's the difference that makes the difference in a behavior and activity. And I got pretty good at it. And I partnered with the founder of neurolinguistic programming, NLP, his name is John Grinder. And uh, I went to a general, I got really confident. I've done a lot of really cool work. And I went to the general and said, general, I can take any training program you have in the entire US Army. I'll cut the training time in half and I'll increase the competency. And he said, you're crazy. And I said, no, I'm expensive. <laughs> and we negotiated <laughs> back and forth. But a long story short, what happened was the general came up with a project that I wasn't expecting. It was, it was a pistol shooting program. And it had been a program they designed, had been designed in World War I. And it was a four-day pistol shooting program for a 45 caliber pistol. And about 20% to 25% of the people did not pass after four days. And so when I set on cutting training program in half, he goes, okay, we're going to do a four-day pistol shooting program. I was thinking like a six-week, 10-week, 12-week program. I had no idea pistol shooting. I never shot a gun before. But my, you know, my partner is a former special forces guy, and I figured, okay, John will know what to do. So the concept of why not now is a little slightly different for me is he calls me up the day I'm going to Virginia. I went through a year and a half top secret clearance to be able to do this work. I'm going to Virginia underground. I'm going to work with the best military guys in the world, the best shooters in the world and the best coach in the world with my partner, John. And John calls me and says, I'm at the airport. I'm so sorry. I have an emergency I got to deal with. I'm flying to Germany. You're on your own. <laughs> so wow. oh, no. like, I don't know. I don't know how to shoot a gun. I'm flying to Virginia. I'm, you know, I've got I've got to work with the best people in the world. I don't even know the first step of where to go. I've never done anything like this in my life. And so a part of me is like, okay, I just got to cancel. Obviously, um, I don't know what to do here. And then another part of me is, you know, why not? <laughs> and why not this? Why not now? Why not me? Right? It was like, you know, <laughs> this is the way to do it. So to make sure that I really followed through, I'm a big believer in if you want to take the island, you burn your boats. <laughs> and so to make to make sure that I did it now and didn't not fall back because I was scared out of my mind. Right? It was it was just like I'm going to go do this. It's going to be a total flop. I called a member of the NLP community that I was a part of that I knew disliked me immensely because he'd been in the business 15 years and I'd been there six months and I was already the partner with the founder and he was not. And so he'd always talk behind my back. So I called him. I didn't reach him, but I got his voicemail. I left him a long message saying, I just want to share with you. I got this cool project. I figured you'd be excited about it. Here's what it is. I get paid nothing if I don't cut the training time in half. And I'd be humiliated, of course. And so I'm just telling you because I know you'd be cheering for me, cheering me on, right? <laughs> so I just I just burned the boats because I knew with him on it, like I couldn't turn out, turn back now. And I went to the to Virginia and I sat down with these guys. And at the time I was 24 and I looked 17. I had a really young face. I'm wearing jeans and a t-shirt if you can imagine. And these three guys walk in that are, you know, 10, 15 years my senior or more. And they go, where's the teacher? And I said, I'm the teacher. And they laughed and said, where's the teacher? And I said, I'm him. They said, how long have you been shooting? I said, shooting what? <laughs> and I said, I've never shot a gun before. And they look, they look in their face, their jaws dropping open. And they said, let's see you shoot. I said, I don't know how to shoot. They go, this is a joke. I said, it's not a joke. I'm going to learn from you. They go, no, we want you to shoot. So I didn't know, but a 45 caliber pistol has quite a bit of kick, and my hands kind of shaking. I put the bullet in the ceiling, and it did not build confidence. Oh, no. <laughs> and so, but then I took the guys, and I just made this shift inside myself. I just like there's this moment where I said, "Now is the time. I just got to step in. Like I know what the hell I'm doing, and I will figure this out." And I just put myself in a state of certainty, and I said, "Listen, I don't have to know how to to you know shoot a gun. I got to learn from you." So take take out your guns, no bullets in them, and let's go through this. And I'm gonna 
I'm going to stop you. I'm going to drive you crazy. You're going to start doing things. I'm going to stop you and ask you what you're doing internally. I'm going to watch what you're doing externally. And what I looked for, to give you an idea, uh, Amy Joe, is I looked for what was idiosyncratic, unique to each person, and what was universal. And what I found is a bunch of universals that they all did that made them the best, and I recorded those. And then I found the most important thing. And it was such a simple thing, but it changed the game. And I only found it because this is the time, now I'm doing this, there's no turning back. So you kind of get the idea. And that is that when they were rehearsing in their minds, I'd stop them and I'd say, tell me, you're watching the site, but what are you doing in your mind? And they weren't even aware of it because most of us, when we're really good at something, we're often unconsciously competent. Like mm -hmm. it's all unconscious. You just do it automatically. And so I brought into their conscious mind and all three of them did something they didn't even know they did which is I'm looking at this target 50 yards out and it's overwhelming. It feels like forever away. They mentally brought the target to a place that was about five feet in front of them. So it looks like this giant big target, not this little dot in the distance in their mind, which increased their sense of certainty they could hit it. And then they executed with certainty and they succeeded. So when I took and did the very first training program, I trained everyone to use the gun identically to them without bullets in it, over and over again until literally it was automatic for them. And then the first time they shot the gun, I put the thing from 50 yards away to five feet away. So it's like, boom, right here in the center of the target. And they, you know, they hit the center and they feel really successful, even though it's close. Boom, boom, boom. Okay, now let's move it 10 feet. Now 20. Well, when I was done, we qualified 100% of the people. They only qualified 75% of them. But we qualified 100% and not in four days, in one and a half days. And I tripled the number of people an expert. The colonel wrote a letter to the general saying it's the first breakthrough in pistol shooting since World War I. And none of it would have happened unless I'd locked off all my options and I had to follow through. It was a must, not a should. It was now, not someday. And what it did is it built confidence in me. So now that I could do that, I took on a code-breaking element. And then, you know, it grew to athletes and then Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, and President you know, Clinton. And it just grew and grew and grew from there. Wow, that's the burning of the boats. <laughs> you know, is is something that you know that mechanism of not just holding yourself accountable. You have no out, right? Is exactly is right. So powerful, and I have a bit of a confession as the chief of investor psychology, right? For yeah, yes, for creative planning. Creative planning. Um, I kind of need a little bit of uh, a little bit of your skills here, Tony. So. Here okay. I have this Why Not Now show, and I can't sit here and not walk the talk. And I have a major Why Not Now right now, and it is to figure out a financial plan. It's been on my to-do list, literally, and I just stare at it every day for a very long time. <laughs> um, I prefer to just put my money under, under my mattress. I am so serious about that, and um, it's not doing any good in savings accounts. And, and when I heard this morning that I was going to be interviewing you and I'm, I'm reading through your book and I'm um, thinking through the last year and a half, you know, I've spoken with so many friends, so many financial advisors, and I went back to my notes from, one of, from Unleash the Power Within and I saw your quote of complexity is the enemy of execution. And yeah. I think that's, that's one of my biggest hurdles. And then it's just fear, you know, not having control. And I start digging into your new book, and thank you for the advanced copy, and I'm excited for everybody to read it. It's much more my style. It's not your 670-pager. This, <laughs> this is a little bit more palatable for me, but you, there's a quote in your book. If you're not confused, you don't know what's going on at this point, because yeah, what's I've, going on right now is so confusing, right? 
yes, yes. Howard Marks, that's he, he owns Oak Creek Capital. He manages $100 billion. And he said, if you're not confused by what's going on, you don't know what's going on. <laughs> so today, literally right now, I'm going to burn my lifeboats and and take massive action after this, this interview. Um, but in the last, like I said, in the last couple of years, I'm speaking with investor friends, financial planners, billionaires, Wall Street people. And and I did the blocking and tackling of making sure the right insurance policies are in place and the risk assessment tests and all that stuff. And then I'm hearing these things from people like, oh, look at the infrastructure ETFs and the Chinese ETFs because they're on a comeback and invest in yourself. No invest in raw materials, gold, blah, 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 blah. Um, So where do I start? Other than having a meeting, um, I, I feel like I've been operating under a system of scarcity kind of all my life when it comes to money. But yes. it's, it's this, okay, I'm ready. I've burnt the lifeboats. Now, what do I do? Well, the, the first thing you've got to do is educate yourself so there's no fear. You know, the whole purpose, you know, I wrote Money Master Game, you said it, 670 pages, you know, uh, Steve Forbes said it in his magazine that if there was a Pulitzer Prize for a financial investment book, this would win hands down. So I was able to do something that a billionaire could read and find value out of and a person just beginning the journey. You know, a millennial thinks they have too much debt or a baby boomer is, it's, thinks it's too late to get there and show people how to do it. So why write another book? I wrote this book specifically because the number one thing that's stopping people is fear. And I wanted to write a playbook, something less than 200 pages. You could read it in a weekend or an evening and you know exactly what to do and you can destroy the fear. So specifically, let's take a look here. Everybody telling you you should invest in this, invest in that. The reason I, I did what I did and I interviewed, it took me almost five years to interview 50 of the smartest people in the world, Warren Buffett, Carl Icahn, you know, Ray Dalio, the most successful hedge fund guy in the, in the world, $165 billion in assets he has. You have to have a $5 billion net worth and $100 million to give him 10 years ago to even talk to him. Now he won't take your money no matter how much you have. So these are the people I went to. And they don't say things like, you should try something in gold, and these ETFs are going, those are the idiots you see who think they can tell you where the market's going to go or what the right element is. What you have to do is a couple simple steps. First, if you haven't done it, and, and most people have, and I think you probably have to some extent, Amy, but maybe a larger scale. So, so the number one decision is to stop being you know, a consumer, which is what you've been up until now, and to become an owner, to become somebody that is truly an investor. And what that requires this is the simplest damn thing in the world, which is deciding on a percentage of the income that you have that's going to stay with you and your family forever. You're not going to give it to Kate Spade or anybody else. You're going to make sure that money is set aside and it's automated, meaning it comes off the top. You never see it. It goes into an investment fund and then you decide where you're going to put it. But you immediately take it off the top so you get in the game. Number two, most important decision, most financial decisions, that the most important investment decision is your asset allocation. Every single great investor in the world will tell you there is nothing more important than asset allocation, meaning where are you going to put the money? you got to make sure it's diversified, and you've got to make sure you put it in places where you don't get screwed by the people who have more experience than you do. Because the biggest challenge in the financial markets, in the financial world, is you have all these advisors who are good people, but they work for the house. 90% of all people called financial advisors, wealth advisors, those are all fancy names. There's 200 of them, names, for a broker. Mm-hmm. And the broker might be a really wonderful person and totally sincere, but they work for the house They've been trained what to sell, and they sell what works for the house. These companies are trying to maximize shareholder value, not your value. That's the problem in the system. 
So what do you do? You've got to decide what that asset allocation is going to be. And what I've done in these two books and in this one is show you what those asset allocations are of the very best people in the world. Instead of you having to figure it out, what do they do? And then you need to find yourself a fiduciary. That's the third step. That's somebody who's legally responsible to put your needs ahead of their own. Now, this is critical. We live in the most upside down country in the world when it comes to this area. Meaning, if you go to England, if you go to Australia, you have everyone in the financial world is a fiduciary. What fiduciary means is, like a lawyer, like a doctor, they're legally required to put your needs ahead of their own. That's the law. So in the United States, there's 310,000 financial professionals. 90% of them are brokers. So that leaves only 10% that are fiduciaries, also known as a registered investment advisor or RIA. What's their job? Their job is to advise you and be transparent and have no conflicts, meaning they don't sell you like a broker does what makes the most money for the house. They figure out what your needs are and they make sure they meet your needs and they're required to do that legally. So if they told you buy Apple this morning and they buy it this afternoon at a cheaper price, they legally have to give you their stock. That's how strong it is. But and some of them the are both, right? They're double yeah, dippers. You, you, you've done your homework. I'm impressed. So <laughs> this is what's crazy. I write Money Master the Game. I created a platform so that people could find out what their fees were. Because 1% extra in fees will cost you 10 years of income. Just give you an idea. So most people don't know what they're being charged or they are told by their broker it's 1%. Well, that 1% is one of 17 fees. They don't tell you the other 16 fees. The average mutual fund costs 3.12%. Now, why does that matter? Well, because the difference between 1% and 3%, got two people with $100,000. They're 35 years old. They've saved it. They put it in the market. The market grows at 8%. They retire at 65. How much do they have? They got the same stocks. But one has it through a mutual fund area, which is indexed, where it's less. Let's, let's not even use an index because it's even cheaper. Let's say one's got it at 1%, one's got it at 3% in fees. The person at 1% of fees, at 30 years of compounding 8%, that, that 100000 is now $762,000. The person who paid 3% in fees has $442,000. They have literally almost half as much money, and they own the same stocks. The only difference was the fees because fees compound just like mm. your investments compound. So what I found is I was telling everybody, here's what you got to do. You got to get with fees under control because if you're getting charged 3% in fees and you're making 6 or 7% a year, you're making nothing, 3 or 4% net. Right. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't count taxes, which would take it even less. Right. So what I so what I did is I promoted fiduciary. I built this this platform. People go on and they can figure out what their fees were. Like you put all your accounts and it pulls them all and shows you what you're really being charged. And then I recommended a fiduciary. And I, I didn't take any money. I gave it all away. Just you know, just like I fed the people from the book. What happens? I finished the book get all these great rave reviews. And then Peter Malouk from Creative Planning is the number one rated wealth advisor for three consecutive years by Barrett's. No one's done that in history. So when he calls me, I listen. And he said, Tony, I want to meet you. He said, I want to talk to you because there's a bunch of people that are playing in the gray area of the law and you should know about it. And that's when he came and dropped the bomb on me. He said, Tony, all these guys that, you know, that are saying they're fiduciaries, they are and they're not. They're duly registered. So of the 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 10% of people that are actually fiduciaries that have to look out for you legally, only 10%, 90% don't. Of that 10%, only 1.5% are not duly registered, which means they're registered as a fiduciary and a broker. So they'll look you in the eye and say, I'm a fiduciary. I'm getting nothing from this. You're paying me a fee for my advice, and I'm not selling you anything I benefit from. 
And then in the middle of the conversation, they switch hats and they're a broker and you don't know it. And they sell you something that isn't good for you, but it's good for them. How can you net that out? Is there any research you can do online ahead of time? Do you have to ask them and hope they say the, tell the truth or? No, I give you the, I give you the 10 questions to ask them in the book. And one of those questions is, are you a fiduciary? And they may say yes. So that means, okay, they aren't just the broker, but then you got to say, are you aligned with a brokerage house? Do you, do you align with a broker? And I give you all the questions and you know, I've had guys look me in the face and say, I'm a fiduciary and those terrible brokers, they rip you off and then sell me a fund. And I'm thinking the fund is being recommended because it's the best fund he can recommend. And what I find out is he owns the fund through another company under a different name, but he's still the owner. So it's just like this stuff happens every day. So there are only 5,000 people in the United States that are pure fiduciaries in the financial area and are not there. So it's one and a half percent of all people. It's it's insane. And Wow. Out of 10,000, to give you an idea. And then out of that group, it doesn't end there because they're not all equal. Some people are fiduciaries and they manage, you know, $100 million. I mean, that's not enough business to be able to, to know what to do with you. Or they've been in business for five years. They've never even seen a bear market. How are they going to adjust? So you got to find somebody sophisticated enough and skilled and fiduciary. And so I give you the checklist of how to do that so you can find that person for yourself real easily. And like you said, or if you want to check out creative planning, I benefit from that because I'm an owner in the firm, right? A partner in the firm, I should say. So I get a benefit of that so people are clear. But what they'll do for you is you go you know, to um, uh, showmethefees.com as if you have a 401k. They'll show you what you're really being charged and show you how you can change it and reduce your fees by an average of 57% that costs you nothing to convert. Or you can go, if you just want to see overall, if you want to get a financial plan, creative planning, if you if you go to um, uh, getasecondopinion.com, getasecondopinion.com, they'll actually do an actual layout for you like you want. They'll do the plan for you and discuss it with you. And if you want to then work with them, they charge less than 85 basis points on average. It goes down as little as 25 basis points. and, um, and it, Or you can just go do it on your own, either one. But you've got to get somebody to represent you. Even if you have a tiny amount of money, it costs so little if, if you don't pay all these crazy fees to get someone who can advise you. And then look, you do the, you look at it once a year. You go and live your life. And once a year, you rebalance. Maybe twice a year or three times a year. If you have a lot of money, you might want to take another look. But these people are now representing you as your fiduciary. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Are you ready for change? Or maybe you're already in a season of expansion. As we embrace this new decade... Are you ready to take action on your own Why Not Now idea? Maybe that means starting the company, launching the podcast, writing the book, or doing more public speaking, injecting your why into what you are doing. At the end of the day, that is exactly what creates connection. And connections convert. My life work is to help guide women through this very stage in their life. I do this through the Renegade Brand Bootcamp. It truly is the career love of my life. The reason I love this program so much is because I'm able to create a mosaic, a collection of like-minded, like-hearted, driven women who come together to level up. They learn the Renegade mentality directly from me, and I share everything I've learned over the past 20 years in business. It's equal parts education, collaboration, accountability, and community. We are accepting applications for our 2020 program. 
And you are welcome to go check everything out about the program at renegadebrandbootcamp.com. And as a very first step, just sign up for my five-day email series. I uncover all of the questions about the bootcamp and help you understand if it's right for you. We've had some incredible women come through the program, and you will hear from them as well. You can check out the curriculum, the structure, the vibe, and everything in between. Many years ago, I went to Mark Cuban and asked him for investment advice. I thought I was going to get some real estate or stock market type of advice. Instead, he said, invest in yourself. Invest in your own growth. Invest in yourself. Bet on yourself. This is the best ROI you will ever find. If you're at that point where you are ready to take action, head to renegadebrandbootcamp.com. So I have this, this epiphany earlier as I'm, I'm reading and trying to <laughs> read as fast as I can of your new book, um, Unshakable, and, and I realize, okay, among my friends and I, I'm an entrepreneur, most of my friends are entrepreneurs, um, many are millennials, and, and you talk about how tens of millions of, of millennials are, are not in the game. And I'm thinking, okay, here we have this Why Not Now show, and a lot of times people their why not now question for themselves is a career path change. You know, they're listening while they're driving to work. Maybe they're commuting to a job they don't like to sit in a cubicle and they want to, they want to do what they've always wanted to do. And that's X, Y, Z. So they want to invest in their self, in themselves and they want to bet on themselves. Um, it occurred to me that, you know, here, of course, we're, we have a big generation that's, that's not in the market and they've been encouraged uh, by this romanticism around entrepreneurship and startups and and what does that do to the long-term growth of the market as as a whole and also what's your your thoughts and advice on do you invest in yourself do you bet on yourself first and then invest in the market do you do it the reverse sequentially or both at the same time if you're trying to figure that out right now what what would you, what would you tell someone Okay, we got several questions in there. Let's take them back <laughs> over the time here for you. I love the way you think, though. So first of all, you know, I'm an entrepreneur myself. I got 31 companies, 12 that I actively manage. They're in seven different industries. I have 1,200 employees. We do $5 billion in sales. So you know, outside my day jobs, I have a lot of other day jobs to give you an idea. So my obsession is actually with helping entrepreneurs to grow. In fact, if any of your listeners have a business right now that does between a million and 50 million, they should go to shopify.com forward slash Tony, shopify.com forward slash Tony, and enter a contest we put together because I'm taking a group of people, I'm providing, I wanna grow businesses geometrically. So we're creating this great competition and it's myself and Tim Ferriss and Dana John to be your mentors. We send you all this material that's free for you to grow your business. And then the top eight victors, the top two are like the people that grew their business, the largest revenue numbers, the other the largest percentage. We've got eight different victors, but they get a million dollar uh, plan that lays out for them a million dollars in PR, a million dollars in magazines. They get a million dollars together all in total of uh, media training. They get a platform. They get all these pieces. Plus, they get our coaching. So I'd love to support those people. But here's what I tell all entrepreneurs outside of that. You must Everybody knows the biggest financial mistake you can make is to fail to diversify. You know, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. Everybody knows that. Very few people practice it. And business owners are the worst. Now, I've been one of the worst mm -hmm. during a part of my life because what we do is you go, look, I got more control here. Like you said, the illusion of control. <laughs> 
you have more influence on your own business. You don't have total control of that business, if we're honest. There's all kinds of moving parts. The government can, all of a sudden, your Airbnb, I was talking to Joe the other day, and they just like, boom, you know, they change the rules in a city and you're out, right? You know, So there's competition can come in, new technology can dislodge you, the government can change the rules, There's the economy can change. There's so many things that can mess with your business. And I'm a believer in business owners, but they all should have a, a second business on the side that has no employees, no moving parts, and you only have to work on perhaps two days out of a year or half days out of the year. That's really creating a money machine that makes money while you sleep that's not related to your business. So if your business goes well, you just have this other incredible bonus. If your business ends up with a challenge, you're still in good shape. And that's critical because if you don't do that, if you don't build that separate income stream, everybody runs into challenges with their business eventually. I mean, let's be real. Like you said, the romanticism about running a business. You know, I do boot camps. My, my, it's called Business Mastery that I do five-day boot camps where I say, I'll grow your business 30 to 130% in less than 12 months. You come here, immerse yourself, million-dollar money-back guarantee. Let's make this thing happen. And we transform businesses. But what you find out is the real numbers, first of all, if you think about it, less than 5% of all companies ever do a million dollars gross. Gross. That doesn't mean they're making an ounce of profit. Four-tenths of a percent will ever do five million and 0. 0.0006, that's six out of 100,000 businesses will ever do 10 million gross. Now, in a world where we think about the Googles, the Apples, you know, the multi-billion dollar companies, the Salesforce.coms, it seems crazy, but that's the facts. And here's the other fact. 50% of businesses, as you know, are gone in a year. 80% are gone in five years. 96% are gone in 10 years. That means four out of 100 make it, and make it doesn't mean they're profitable. So you want another parallel plan you don't want to put all your eggs in your business. So to answer your question, I don't care if you start with a tiny number. There's a cool technique that was developed by uh, Dr. Shlomo, who was nominated for Nobel Prize, and he's a behavioral econom economist. And his whole approach is everybody can go on a diet tomorrow. Everybody can save money tomorrow. So he created this technique called save more for tomorrow. And what he does is have you save three or 5%, because anybody can save three to 5%. Even you know you think you can't, you'll never miss it. But then you go to your employer, or if you're a business owner, you go to yourself and you say, when I hit each of these numbers, I'm gonna take this much like a tax on my business and it's gonna go straight into my investments. And I'll tell you why I know that's valuable. Ken Blanchard wrote the One Minute Manager books. He's a dear friend of mine. I helped him take five strokes off his golf game, so I thought I was God and he wanted to help me. And he said, I, I wanna help you. And so he, sure enough, he came to me at one point and he just said, look, Tony, I'm where I am financially today because I got this really cool piece of advice where this man said to me, you need to make sure that you realize every business will always eat up whatever capital is available. If it's there, it's going to get used because of growing business. That's what happens. He said, you got to put a firewall in. He said, when you write this book, Ken, the business can benefit from the book, but all the income should go into an account that you don't touch either. It just swept there and it's an investment account. And he said, Tony, that's what saved my life. So I did that with my first book and my first infomercials. And when things got really rough in my businesses, like 1999, the market's falling down through the cracks, everybody's freaking out. Or, you know, 2008 was, you know, was obviously in a different position by that point. But you're in such good shape that even if the business are in trouble, you're not in trouble. And it gives you the peace of mind, the clarity to be able to get the job done effectively. So I tell business owners, if you start with a 5% and then you give yourself a tax, you know, it says, I'm, no matter what, even if I don't have the cash, I'm still going to take 10% and I want to put it in this account. You'll adjust. Your brain will find the way to adjust. It's a unique thing about human beings. And I'll tell you what comes out of this. You know, the, the 
uh, one of the best examples I know of compounding, because everybody knows about compounding, but very few people actually practice it very much. And that's your challenge right now. You're a brilliant woman. It looks like you've built some really successful businesses. I'm sure you've made a lot of money. But how many people you know that are athletes, that are entertainers, that have made more money than God, and they don't have anything because they didn't make money while they're sleeping. They made money while they're working, and they made money off the business, but they didn't put in a, a place. Yep. No, you can't, you can't do that. So what you, what you really want to do is this guy who worked for UPS, he, his name is Theodore Johnson, real story, true guy. He never made more than $14,000 a year on the 1950s. Yet when he retired, he had $70 million. Now, how the hell do you do that 14 grand a year? A friend of his came and said, you are going to be a rich man. I'm going to guarantee it because we're going to put a 20% tax on your income. And he goes, what are you talking about? I can't live on $14,000 as it is. He said, listen to me. He said, the government came in and said, there's a 20% additional tax. You scream, you yell, you complain, and you pay it and you'd adjust. He said, the difference is this is for your future self and it's going to make you wealthy. And it's exactly what he did. The 20% was swept out. It was put into an account. It was invested. And it came to 70 million. He got to give away 35 million while he was still alive. That's the kind of power that's available to us if we really put something like this in place. Now, the problem is it grows like grass. The compounding in the beginning looks really slow. But then it grows and grows and grows. Like if I said to you, let's go play golf. And I said, I'm not very good. And then we get to the first hole. And I go, you know, make it interesting. Why don't we play 10 cents a hole? And your brain goes, ah, no problem. There's 18 holes, a buck 80. And then I say, ah, make it more interesting. Let's just double it each hole. You know, first hole's 10 cents, next hole's 20 cents, third hole's 40 cents, 80 cents. So your brain calculates, yeah, about three bucks at six holes. There's only 18 holes. So yeah, yeah, it's not gonna be expensive, no problem. But of course, it's worth $13,000. And in the beginning, if I put on a graph, it looks like grass growing, like nothing's happening. All the growth goes from basically hole number 14 to 18. Those last four holes, give you this geometric growth and that's what happens in investing. So it's not gonna, it's not sexy, it's not gonna excite you in the beginning, but if you do it and you put it on automatic pilot and you forget about it and maybe once a year you're looking at it, you're gonna wake up one day, as long as you're diversified, as long as you've done the principles we teach here and you're gonna have more money than you can spend outside your business and if your business has gone well, you have even more. So the for the wine honors that are listening, and they're wanting to throw that kind of Hail Mary pass toward entrepreneurship. That's, that's okay. That's good. Make sure you're diversified and you also have, um, have your at least 3 to 5% that, that you're investing. But when we look at millennial mentality, and I'm not technically a millennial, but conveniently I choose to be at times. Um, when <laughs> It all depends. But here's a generation that, that can't stop refreshing their phone to see how many likes they're getting on Instagram. And the whole set it and forget it idea to me is I'm worried I'm going to be up at night, like looking and, oh my gosh, good day, bad day. Um, that's kind of a, a question in itself. Our, a, our, how, do we, how do we kind of um, position our minds for setting and forgetting? You know, is it, is it possible <laughs> with this generation? I, I think it's possible. Here, why is this generation not participating? Well, one reason is they have so much, you know, college debt. It's just ridiculous. It's insane what we've done in this country, encouraging kids to get educations, many of which are so outdated that it doesn't really add any value in terms of their career at this stage. So that's a challenge all by itself. But the bigger challenge is they lived through 2008, and it's not that mm -hmm. far along. It was at a very early stage of their development, an important stage of their development, and they saw their family or their friends losing all they had. And so, and they saw the abuse, and the abuse in the system is still there. So they don't trust and they don't want to participate. 
Well, I don't trust either, but I believe in trust and verify. I don't, I don't need to trust. I can verify, know what I'm really doing, and I've educated myself, and that's how you get yourself to financial freedom. As far as how not to look at it every single day, I think they, they have enough things to keep them busy with all the things that they're doing in their business and their life and perhaps their children and their social media and all that stuff. I, I found that most people, if you've got a strong fiduciary who really has held your hand, I mean, doing this on your own is, you know, it's you can absolutely do it. You could go invest in index funds. You could do these things on your own. But I found, and most of the people I know, virtually all wealthy people I know, all know there's value to have something outside yourself because otherwise you get emotional and you, you get fearful and you, you say, oh, I'm going to sell. It's so easy mm -hmm. to get yourself in trouble in the market because the market has never taken a dime from anybody. Only you can take that from yourself by selling at the worst time, you know, that type of thing. So you want a financial advisor who you respect, who you like, who has a tremendous track record, and you can look at this person and go, they know what they're doing and I've done my homework. I know what I'm doing. Between the two of us, they're going to watch this every day. I don't need to. And they're going to be on top of this piece. And it gives you freedom. And also, most people's lives are full already. You know, if you got to look at your finances every day, you're going to stress yourself out. So especially when you realize some of the things I teach in the book. Like, for example, everybody's afraid of corrections and crashes. And every year there's a correction. A correction by, by its legal description is when the market drops 10% or more up to 20%. If it drops 20% or more, it's called a crash or it's called a bear market. So think about this. How often are there corrections? Since 1900, 116 years, we've had, on average, a correction every year. Last year, if you remember in January, we had the biggest, yes. <laughs> biggest drop in the history, the biggest, worst start to, to a January in the history of the stock market. We lost $2.3 trillion, trillion. Yep. trillion with a T. People are freaking out. Is this the end? Oh, my God, the bear market's coming. Here's what you got to know. Every year there's a correction, on average, at least once a year. The average correction is 47 days, less than two months. And the average drop is 14%. If you know that, you see, if you know winter, if, if it rains outside, you don't go, oh my God, it's raining. It's, well, oh my God, it's horrible. You go, it's winter. It's going to rain for a while and then it's going to be springtime. Yeah. And when it's winter, you want to take advantage of winter. Winter in the financial markets is phenomenal. It's the only place in the world where things go on sale and people get fearful. If, you know, if I told you you could buy a Ferrari for 50% off and that was your favorite car, you'd be fairly excited, right? Well, that's what happens in a bear market. So here's what you got to know. The market's correct every year. How did it do last year? It corrected, went down through the floor. People freaked out. And where did it end up at the end of the year? They broke all records across virtually every major market in the U.S. to give you a perspective, right? What happens next? How many of those become bear markets? 80% do not become a bear market. 80% of the time, people are freaking out over nothing. If it's going to be a bear market, the average bear market comes every five years today. In the last 100 years, it was three years. last 50 years, it's five years. Every five years... We're due for one. We're overdue for one. Everybody knows we're overdue one, right? Mm -hmm. So, but you say, okay, then I want to time the market. I want to wait until the market <laughs> drops me. and then I'm going to get in there. Well, people have been waiting. This is the second largest bull market in history. They've been waiting almost eight years now, some of them, and they've missed out completely on a 200% return. Listen, the market dropped 35%, 50% peaked the trough in 2008, brief time. But what happens on every single bear market, every single crash we've had in the history of the United States for two centuries, because we're a country where our population grows, we're a country that's got a, a technology that's extraordinary, we're a country that's always increasing our productivity, for two centuries, we have corrections and they always come back. So we went down 35, 36%, say 50% peak to trough, but what happened immediately? You saw a 69% jump in the next 12 months, and it's been over 200% since 2009 when we hit the bottom. 
That's how much is gone while people are still waiting, saying, I think the market's overvalued. So here's what I teach people in the book and in other places, and really, really critical. The worst thing you can do is try to time the market because it can't do it. If you do it, it'll be luck and it won't be consistent. Warren Buffett said to me, market forecasters on CNBC are only there for the purpose of making fortune tellers look good. <laughs> they, they're just, they just can't do it. It's not successful. It's not going to happen. So here's what you need to know. The best study I found, two different studies, one was by JP Morgan and one was uh, by uh, Schwab. In the last 20 years, the S&P 500, the index, has grown 8.2%. Now, that's damn good. You're going to be compounding your money like crazy in that area. There's just one challenge. If you were out of the market because you were trying to time things, you're thinking it's too high right now, it may fall or whatever it is. If you're out of the market during the 10 best trading days in 20 years, your turn drops from 8.2 to 4.5 and half, basically. If you were out of the market on the 20 best days in 20 years, 365 days each year, right? 20 years, you missed one day a year for those 20 years and it was the best trading day. Now you're down to 2%. If you're out on the best 30 days, you lost money Yeah. in 20 years. And so and then you say, yeah, but the market's really bad right now. It's volatile right now. It's this, it's that. Six of the 10 highest best trading days came within two weeks of the worst trading days. So Donald Trump was selected president. No one thought he was going to be, or at least the, the, the polls didn't show he was going to be. The market's expectation was different. They tanked like crazy. I immediately called my registered investment advisor and said, I want to throw more money in first thing before the markets open in the morning. And they exploded up. And you know what's happened between now and, and the beginning of this year. It's completely crazy. So if you're not willing to be, you, the most detrimental thing you can do is be in the, not be in the market. And here's the other piece. The study they did, I don't have the numbers in front of me, I apologize. But you'd say, yeah, but I got to get the right timing. The person, they took a group and they measured if they got into the work, the person who got in the very best day of the year, by far no better day to, to have gotten in, versus the person who got in randomly any day, versus the person who stayed in cash, versus the person who got in the worst day of the year. Meaning the worst day you can invest in, the stocks are the most elevated and they drop the most after that. Well, obviously the person who got in the perfect day made more money, but in the study what they found was the person who got on the worst day only had 20,000 less dollars at the end of 15 years than the person who got in the best day. The person who was the worst off was the person, of course, who stayed in cash, thinking that they're waiting for the ideal time. Because if you don't like the market now, and then it drops by 20%, 30%, 40%, 50%, you think you're going to suddenly start liking the market in the middle of the night? It's not going to happen. you got to get diversified. It's not just the stock market. you got to be diversified. But the greatest returns for the last two centuries have been on the stock market. So a portion of your assets need to be there. Trying to time it is a disaster. You are literally destroying your financial future if you're sitting there trying to find the right time to get in. Powerful. So, so helpful. And I, I've seen the graphs. Obviously, thirty year, the last 30 years plus, it's it's headed in one direction. When we look at the index funds, this is something new to me. I wasn't as familiar. I'm much more familiar with mutual funds. And with index funds or the, an index fund in general, um, where we're matching the market index, really, right? It's kind of constructed of, of all, everything that's in the market. Is if, if more millennials don't start getting in, are we going to jack that up? Like, what happens? Is, is there a concern at all of a void, a, a big void of a generation that isn't investing? Well, it's not going to hurt the markets. It's going to hurt those, those young people who are becoming, they're going, to, they're, going to, they're going to be middle-aged people before they know it. At one stage, they're going to be retiring people. And unless you learn to compound your money, 
you only will have what you've been able to earn and that'll never make you financially free. You'll never be able to do for your family what you want to do. You'll never be able to do the trips. You'll never have the freedom. And more importantly, or equally importantly, you won't be able to have money that you can give to others that you want to make a difference with. There really won't be an impact as a whole for the market. No, there's no. no, because here's what, here's what an index fund is. All an index fund is sounds complicated. Some people are not, you know, in the financial world, if you don't know the words, it sounds like gobbledygook. All an index fund is, is a mutual fund. You hire someone as an active manager to actively try to beat the market by picking a mix of stocks, bonds, different types of investments that they believe will beat the market. So that sounds really, it makes sense. Like they're going to be better than me at picking the market since I know nothing. That's what you believe. But the problem is they charge so much in fees for that. And they're good at charging in fees, but they're terrible at producing results. 96%, I want everybody to hear this. 96% of all mutual funds fail to beat the market, to even match the market in any 10-year period of time. That means only 4% do it. Now, you and I are aggressive people, right? We're go-getters. We're going to say, fine, I'm going to find the 4% that beat it. The only problem is the 4% is always changing. And I'll give you a great statistic that's, that's kind of funny. Have you ever played, do you play blackjack? Ever play blackjack? Sure. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening and you play blackjack, if you don't, some people call it 21. The goal is to get to 21 without going over 21. You bust if you go over it and you lose. And if you get two face cards worth 20, 10 each, and your inner idiot says, hit me, I think I'm going to get an ace, you know, out of the entire deck. You have an 8% chance of getting an ace. You have a 4% chance of getting the right mutual fund. That'll give you a clue about how far off it is. So an index fund, by contrast, you don't pay any management fees because no one has to go put this together. What they do is they take the index, they take, for example, the S&P 500 index, one of the most common ones, most well-known ones, they pick the 500 strongest stocks in the industry, and those you get a piece of all of those companies. And you don't have to worry about them trading. So if somebody has a mutual fund, they're constantly trading. And when they trade, you got to pay fees for them to trade, even though you didn't ask them to. In a mutual fund, you might buy it in December and the guy might sell the stocks and now there's taxes due and you'll be charged the taxes even though you didn't get a return. No one said tax law was fair. <laughs> it's just how it works. So but when you're on the index, they're not constantly trading. The fees are very small, 12, 14 basis points, which means like uh, 10 basis points to give you an idea is 10 of 100 basis points. 100 basis point is 1%. So one-tenth of 1% will be 10 basis points. You know, you can get um, something like Vanguard's S&P 500 for 0.05, so five one-hundredths of a percent. Or you can go to your mutual fund, not knowing it, where people pay to play. You have choices. They pay to be on that platform. They are not the best people. They're the most expensive people. And they're going to charge you up the yin-yang, and you don't even know what you're being charged. And some of them, if you're lucky enough to get Vanguard, most of them won't provide index funds unless you're with a really large company. And if they do, some of them charge you 65 basis points, 1%. One company charges 2% up front to get an index that costs 0.05. They're charging you thousands of percent more than it really costs you to get. But because you don't know it, it's the only place in the world where you can go and your your neighbor might get the, get the index for 0.05 and you're paying 2%. Do you want a Honda Accord for $20,000 or $900,000? That's the difference economically, proportionally. So it's just crazy. It's the only industry I know of in the world 
where people get screwed this badly and don't even know what's happening because it seems so complex and there's no transparency. We bring that transparency to people. That's the purpose. Thank you for writing the book and, and sharing a lot of this. I've learned more today than I've been than I've learned in the last year and a half talking to all these people, right? So uh, switching Oops, gears. Yes, absolutely. But but changing gears for just a second with where we are right now. And, and you mentioned you know, the, the past political season. It seems to me that there's a, a strong need for people to kind of understand different points of view. And, and maybe we roll this up under the word empathy. Maybe we don't. It seems like a buzzword right now. How can we, Tony, exercise that a little bit more? How can we um, maybe get outside of our bubbles a little bit more and start to understand maybe opposing opinions and have these healthy tension conversations with people so we, we aren't so divided? Well, I think you have to first see why we're there. And I don't think anybody knows exactly why. It's a combination of things that have gotten to this point. Social media has great benefit, but it also has a great negative. And the negative is that people, you know, they don't send a picture of themselves. They do a picture of themselves with 15 filters. Mm -hmm. They describe their life better than it is. And other people read the shit and try to compete by making more stuff up. So you've got so much bullshit that's flowing around in social media. And then people evaluate their lives through someone else's bullshit projection and, and they, they get depressed, they get overwhelmed. Also, you know, in real life, if you came up to me or I came up to you and I, you know, I say something horrible to you, there's some consequence. The consequence could be you or your friends. The consequences with me might be something you challenge me physically. You know, I'm six, seven, we might have a little altercation. <laughs> but, in, but, but if you go to the web, you can be a, you know, 80 pound weakling who does not have any intelligence or care about anything or anyone but yourself. And you can go burn people all day long and make yourself feel really significant thrashing people because there's two ways to be significant. One is take huge risks, work your ass off and build something. Or the other is tear down everybody else's building, right? And if I can make you look smaller, if I can make you go backwards, at least in my mind, I have the illusion I'm going forward. So you have these dynamics in social media that have caused us to lose empathy in social media, now that's just becoming a practice for people. You look around the country and where things are, and you know, uh, I, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump's communication style by any stretch of the imagination, but I also think saying, I'm gonna leave the country is the worst thing that's ever happened, and it's all over, is equal bullshit. It's equal drama. It's people looking for drama because they're not managing their own lives. And so don't get me wrong. There's something that's unjust. We all got to stand up and do something about it. But I was, I had, a, I had a lunch with George W. Bush the other day, and I wasn't a big fan of George W. Bush, I have to be honest, because you, know, you see him through the filter of the media and all the things that have been said and done. When you spend two and a half hours face to face with someone and you drill into their psyche, which is what I do, and I'm asking him all the decisions he made and why he made them, you might not agree with every decision, but when you hear what he knew, what the information was, you would probably make a very similar decision. And it, creates a different level of empathy, a different level of compassion versus the bullshit judgment where you're not, in, you don't know everything. You only know what's fed to you. And then you get, you know, people get angry over nothing today. We've got an angry society. But I was asking him, I said, tell me how you feel about all this. And I really acknowledged him because, you know, he never attacked uh, Obama, even though he disagreed with things, never verbally did. He said, you know what? I had my ears. These are his eight ears. And it's not me to give him stuff to have to deal with from a former president. That's totally Bush League. And I really respected that. But I said, well, will you tell me privately what you think? <laughs> he said, well, I certainly would have loved to have my brother win. He said, but that clearly didn't happen. He said, but here's what I'll tell you, Tony. When people say the end's coming, he said, here's what I would say to you. He said, I'd say that when I saw Nixon 
destroy the presidency, I thought. Destroy our country, I thought. President of the United States a crook. And there he is getting in the helicopter leaving. He said, I thought that was the end of the presidency, the end of you know, the strength of our government, our culture. And he said, it was totally wrong. He said, here's what I can tell you that I've learned. And it was really sage and simple advice. He said, listen to me, the office is bigger than the occupant. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was so elegant and brilliant. He goes, Tony, our, uh, that office of the presidency, someone could screw up and do all kinds of things, but we have an entire set of institutions that are a part of our democracy. And there can things can go up and down all around, but the overall, just like the market, is going to be strong because it's more complex than one individual. One individual can make a lot of waves and create a lot of upset, and they can create some problems, but they can't destroy what it is that we have because it's an institution that's greater than that. I just thought that was really, really interesting and brilliant. I think those people that are, are not feeling empathy, how do you create more empathy? Well, you can model some of the people that have worked in inner cities where kids have been so abused that they have no empathy, empathy that you know, abusers, those that are abused become abusers very often. And if you look in Texas, outside of Dallas, there's a teacher that does this. People all over the country that do various things. One of them I know of teaches these kids to take care of an animal. And by falling in love with an animal and taking care of this animal, looking out for this animal, developing empathy for the animal, they found that it translates to people. And so they have pets for every kid in the class, to give you an idea, that they personally look after. It's kept at the school, supported, and just transform grades, psychology, culture, and these kids. We all need to find something, start with something you do care about and expand that, you can get there. And then I think the second thing is, is to remember that everybody's doing the best they can with the resources they have. When I, you know, I was on um, CNN in the middle of, uh, after the, uh, the shooting of the, of the 30 children that was there in Connecticut at, uh, what's, yeah, Sandy Hook. Mm -hmm. um, and I was working with some of the kids there and helping turn the kids around and dealing with all those things. And I was on the show and it was, uh, the show was all about, you know, gun violence and eliminating guns. And there was just this same vitriol that you see today across so many different issues. All these people on both sides saying the other side is evil and then doing horrible things, you know, just horrible things. And I, I just sat there with this group and I, I was the one opinion that said, can I just bring something up? Both sides are, are demonizing the other side, but let's just be honest. Both sides want their children protected. Both sides want the teachers protected. Both sides want no one to be hurt. The way it's being talked about, both sides are evil. It's total bullshit. You have two sides that want the exact same things. They just have different beliefs about how to get the job done. So let's stop demonizing and let's figure out where we're in alignment. We want our children protected. We want our environment safe. We want our teachers protected. Let's start with that. And then let's start to work with how we can do this. But when you demonize the other side, when you question their intent, say you don't care about our children or you're just doing this for this. I mean, I had this conversation with President Obama. I had a meeting with him with their 16 billionaires in the room up in San Jose, California. And Mark Benioff, who runs Salesforce.com, started that company out of one of my seminars. He worked for Oracle and he left and said to me, I'm, you know, you pushed me over the edge. I'm going to start this company. I'm going to change the business world, salesforce.com. We're going to do hundred million dollars in business. Now he does 8 billion, right? To give you an idea. But he called me up and said, look, you're in San Jose already. You know, the president's coming. Why don't you come with me? And I said, I voted for him the first time, but I can't vote for him the second time because he's divided the nation. I said, everything is demonization. And he says, it's all Republicans. I'm an independent, you know, I'll, I'll vote for either one, but both sides are doing this. And he's got the bully pulpit. And I said, so you and I are dear friends, but you know, I don't think we're aligned politically in, in this case. He goes, Tony, I agree with you. I said, well, then why the hell are you the second biggest fundraiser for him? He says, well, because you and I agree with so many other things he does. 
and I still think he's worth doing. Why don't you come and share this? I said, nah, nah, I'm not going to do that. He goes, Tony, come. I go, look, I'm not a bullshitter. I can't just sit there and be fake. But I said, I'm also respectful. I, I don't want to be disrespectful. He said, come and just share from the heart. So I go to this meeting and it's the heads of you know Google and it's uh, the guy that started LinkedIn. It's all the billionaires that have basically shaped a good portion of our digital economy. And, um, and the president comes in, meets everybody he's been briefed, he knows everybody is, says hello and connects with us. And he says, listen, I'm not here to give a speech. I wanna learn from you guys. You're the, you know, you're the billionaires that have built this business. And of course he gives an hour speech after saying he's not gonna do it. <laughs> and then, and then, he, then Mark Benioff turns to him and says, um, Mr. President, he said, uh, you said you want to give and take with a group. Or do you still want that? He said, yeah. He goes, okay, well, let's go for some questions. He goes, why don't we start with you? And he points straight at me as the first person in the room. <laughs> and, and everybody paid a quarter of a million dollars to be in that room as a fundraiser, right? I didn't. And so I felt bad. I was like, I said, well, I don't know if I should be the first person. He goes, no, you'd be the first person. So I said, all right, Mr. President. I said, I just want you to know I respect you. I voted for you. I share a lot of values with you. I said, but I got to be honest, I, I don't believe I can vote for you this time. Not that you need my vote. I think you're going to win regardless. But I'm not the only one. I have lots of people or my friends that voted for you the first time. I'm not going to vote for you now. The reason is because, you know, you've demonized, you know, the other side. I don't see how you, I want to know how you can get anything done, you know, when the other side's not going to work with you because you, you, you used all your political capital on the health bill on, you know, the Affordable Care Act. And you know, most people are still not happy with it. Some are happy with it. But I said, I, I need to know how you're going to get anything done when you've demonized them. And then the second thing, if I got a second question, is what would you do? You know, why didn't you follow through with Simpson Bowles? The biggest challenge in our economy is the budgets, the deficits. You had Republicans and Democrats for the first time in history actually agreeing what to do, and you didn't take them up. And the whole audience just tightened like you can't even imagine. <laughs> and then the president said, well, uh, well, he goes, those are tough questions. I said, well, you don't have to answer them. He goes, no, I'll answer them. He goes, you know, uh, I've never demonized the Republican Party. <laughs> I just sat there and looked at him like, are you kidding me? He goes, I've never, I've never demonized. And as far as Simpson Bowles, he goes, you know, your guys that run those hedge funds wouldn't be happy about getting rid of remaindered interest. It's a tax benefit they get. And he goes, the American people wouldn't want their, their, you know, to lose their deductions on their mortgages. And he said, I got a much better plan. And I said, Mr. President, your plan might be much better. But even Democrats won't vote for it. So by definition, it's not better if it can't get implemented. And we went like this back and forth for 20 minutes back and forth in this process. And at the end, I thought I pissed everybody off in the room. And uh, you know, the gentleman founded uh, uh, LinkedIn came up to me as the third biggest, named Reed Hoffman, he was the third biggest fundraiser for him. And I thought he's gonna thrash me now. And he goes, Tony, that was amazing. I said, he said, I've raised the third amount of money for him. And I couldn't figure out why he wouldn't do Simpson Bowles. And, and then the president invited me to come meet with him to actually sit down and talk about this because I said, Mr. President, I'm independent. I'm not some dumb Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm independent. I've worked. I voted for both sides of the aisle. But I got to tell you, there's no way you're going to get anything done in the second half unless you change the dialogue you're having with American people. And he said, you know what? You've really made me think today. Come to the White House. We'll spend an hour one on one and we'll talk about this. And the next day. Yeah, the next day, unfortunately, I got a call from Romney who said, I'm going to the first debate. Will you help me? And I said, well, I've helped people on both sides. Of the aisle. I'll help you. He did really well in the first debate. And I was uninvited to the White House after that. <laughs> but my point of all this is, 
we live in a world where the compassion has disappeared and it's because we live in a world where everybody demonizes all the time. Social media has played a role. The media certainly has played a role. We don't, the media no longer gets up and does reporting. It's, you know, if you watch MSNBC, it's one universe. If you watch Fox, it's another universe. If you watch CNN, it's another universe. And so we live in a world where you and I have to actually start to see everybody's got positive intent. They're trying to, they want their child protected. They just have a different belief about how to do that. Everybody wants the country protected. Donald Trump thinks you should put a travel ban. Other people say that's un-American and we shouldn't do it. But they, everybody wants to be protected. We have to align in the areas where we are. And the greatest way to get compassion is get around people that are in need or get around where people are desperately hurting and help somebody because it'll put perspective. You know, we feed 100 million people every year now, the last two years in a row, I'm gonna feed a billion over the next 10 years. But I fed 2 million people a year forever. And the way I did it was, I provided 2 million, the other 2 million came from my foundation. It was people went to my seminars who I convinced, go out one day a year, take your children and feed people. Wear a t-shirt and jeans, deliver a basket of food. Here's how you do it, show them how to do it, but here's what'll happen. You will realize you have no problems. You will realize your financial problems are nothing. When you go in a home where they don't have food and you see these people light up and you're just the delivery person, even though you bought the food, you don't tell them it's you. So you're able to take in what they're what they're experiencing and it, it, it hooks you. People get hooked for life. That's how we grew it from, you know, I was fed when I was 11 years old. We had no food. So when I was 17, I fed two families and the next year, four, eight, and then, you know, got to 100,000, got to a million, got to two million, now it's 100 million. And it's all grown out of that experience. And the people that do it come away with so much more compassion and they come away also realizing they have no problems because you think you have your problems till you meet people that have no food. So helpful. I mean, just... Some of the takeaways of of your answer there, the the willingness to have that kind of healthy tension conversation when you stood up in the meeting and and told Obama what you thought, um, what that. Well, you know, what's nice is he just. What's nice though is like he's now called since then. He got pissed off, but he just called since then. He's called the two different people and wants to meet now. Wants me to work with him now on what's going next with it. So it's if if you tell the truth and you're not a jerk about it, like I wasn't. I wasn't making him wrong. Exactly. I was just saying, I don't understand. And I, I find most people respond. If I gone and beat him up, then we wouldn't have a relationship right now. Sure. You had, res- there was an underlying level of respect and, and compassion and uh, love it. And th- this is a question I ask everyone and anyone that follows you in your work or has attended your seminars or reads your books n- knows a little bit of this, but if you could kind of in, in a simple answer, um, tell us how you keep your mind healthy. What's the first thing that pops into your mind? Then the, the, when I was on my own and I was trying to figure out how to survive, I realized I was so depressed, so sad, so overwhelmed, with the loss of my brother and sister, not being with them, you know, not having a place to live, trying to figure out what to do. The midst of that, I realized I have to take control of my brain. And I, I had an early teacher named Jim Rohn who taught me leaders are readers and that you should miss a meal. Don't miss reading at least 30 minutes a day. And I don't, mean like a website. I mean, pick up a book that'll challenge you psychologically, spiritually, strategically, and feed your mind so that you're constantly doing it. And what I started doing then is I was traveling so much, I went to audio because, you know, then you can do a net time, no extra time while you're driving, while you're working out. So I've done that for decades. So I believe you got to every day stand guard at the door of your mind. You got to realize that your best, you know, if your worst enemy puts you know, sugar in your coffee, you got sweet coffee. If your family member, your best friend accidentally drops one drop of strychnine in your coffee, you're dead. So every day you got to watch your coffee. You got to watch the doorway to your mind and not let things go in 
that sour it or destroy it, and you got to feed it. You got to feed and strengthen it. And to me, the way to do that is reading specifically something challenging. And the second piece for me is you got to feed and strengthen your body every day. And even if it's just five or ten minutes of something like a, a couple sprints or you know lifting some weights or something like you know I have cold plunges in one of my homes. I have a river, freezing river. And then, you know, the cold punches are 56 degrees. The river can be, you know, 35 degrees in the wintertime. And I start every day going in one of those cold punches. And why do I do this insane thing? Because I train my brain that when I say we're going to do something, I don't negotiate with myself. My brain knows if I say we're doing it, we do it now. There's no hesitancy. We just make ourselves follow through. And I think that kind of conditioning within yourself, getting yourself so that you train yourself to just follow through on whatever you commit to is probably one of the most important skills, not just for financial wealth, but for you know a life that you're proud of and a life where you're really to, able to live your dreams. Love it. We have I have a shelfie club. So instead of selfies, we encourage each other to take photos of our books, our shelfies. And so it's oh, a book club, cool. and your book is is going on it um, for sure, obviously. And so we'll make sure that Unshakable's on there. And to wrap up and and kind of anchor the why not now theme, is there anything rolling around in your mind that you haven't done that you're thinking about doing? And I'm sure there are many things, but you you have why not now in your DNA. It's probably something you don't even think about. Um, is there anything though that's that's been just kind of out there and maybe it's not even business um, that, that you'd be willing to share and it, maybe it's time to get your why not now on? I gotta tell you honestly, without exaggeration, um, I'm such a, I, I drive people crazy with now. <laughs> so, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm so conditioned for now, um, sometimes maybe even more so than it needs to be. Um, I teach everybody around me that as soon as you set a goal, as soon as you make a real decision in that moment, while you're in state, while you're committed, while you're excited, while you're passionate, while you're hungry to make it happen, you need to do something in that very moment that locks you in to follow through. So you need to call somebody or book a meeting or schedule something, whatever, because if you don't, if you don't tap into that instead of why not now, if you don't just tap into the now, then what's going to happen is you're going to come home and you're going to have 8 million messages and you're going to have emails and texts and you're going to have social media and you're going to have your business stuff and you will no longer be in state and your great intention will disappear. I can't tell you how many people are frustrated with themselves who have the purest intent, but they didn't use the power of their state. What I do is when I make the decision, what do I got to do? What's at least one thing I can do right now that'll commit me to following through? And I've taught it to my friends and my allies and my associates and everybody else. So if there was something right now, I can promise you I would do something towards it or <laughs> I would schedule something on it. So when it comes up, I will. But that's really the way I live my life. I couldn't be more aligned with you, Emmy Joe, in terms of the focus on now, because now is the only time that it really exists. Love it. Why not now? Why not me? And um, final, final question Pirates or ninjas? Who's tougher, Tony? <laughs> ninjas, for sure. Would you like to Silence. back that up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think in an altered life, I must have been a Japanese ninja because I've I've had a fascination with their culture and what they're about for a very very long time. But uh, I, I think that's a that's a fun one. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, thank you for the work that you do, the important work, and the giving back <laughs> aspect is just. I, I don't even know if people realize, but it's incredible too. And it's just been awesome to follow your journey and just jams. I'm, I'm cramming reading your book today and I'm definitely in that state of now. So I can thank That's you great. for that. 
That's awesome. Well, go get your plan, girl. And set yourself up so that on top of all the other beauty in your life and all the good you're doing, you truly will be free. You'll never have to worry about money over the long term. And you can also do the things with the people that you love without any restrictions, without any limits. That's that's why I'm doing this. So good luck to you. Well, thank you. If you want to take the island, you burn your boats. <laughs> this concept is reoccurring in terms of finding a mechanism to make sure you have to follow through with what your why not now is with what you say you're going to do. And in some cases, we've talked about how that's buying a ticket to something, a plane ticket or signing yourself up for something you can't back out of. Whatever it may be, that really stuck with me. If you want to take the island, you burn your boats. He had no out, right? And Oh, wow. What an awesome chat. I I really enjoyed so many aspects of that conversation with Tony. So real quick, this book, Unshakable. You can head to unshakable.com, check out the offers that you specifically get that are available. The book comes out on February 28th. But um, once again, I calculated if you remove the index and the acknowledgments and all that jazz, it's only 187 pages. Very doable. It's a playbook. Um, and that's where you can get it. Like I said, or just Amazon pre-order it. I'll keep you posted on my progress with my why not now. And it's not fun and sexy necessarily to talk about money, but it is something that has been pushed off of my to-do list, but it still keeps me up at night and, um, it's time to actually do something. If you're in a similar spot, join me, fill me in. And I promise I'll stay accountable on this one. Mr. Gruer, welcome to the show. Amy, how you doing? <laughs> Thanks for having me. You're my favorite guest of all time, so that's pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. So Richard is the executive producer of this show. He edits everything. He erases all my mess-ups and helps make it sound good. And he's also a musician. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But most importantly, he is my husband. So that's pretty exciting to have you on the show. And we're going to do more of this. I've been begging him to come and talk to me. And finally, we're doing it. But one of the reasons why he's joining us today is because he has taken his Why Not Now moment and made it happen. So he's releasing his second album soon. But now, today, he's releasing the first song of the second album. So, Richard, tell us about that and why this week? Why Valentine's Week? For sure. Um, so, yeah, to, to back it up a sec, as, as AGO said, uh, I, I get to edit and sort of produce every week. And being around or ingesting this kind of why not now energy every week is kind of inspiring and it just kind of gets into your blood after a while. So for those of you that have been listening since the start or even just kind of picked up um, now, uh, you know, you probably have a similar feeling or you, you know what I'm talking about or you will certainly know what I'm talking about. And I've really been inspired to take that energy and put it into the things that I love. And one thing that I sh- I've shelved in my life for the last kind of three or four years, I guess, um, is music in general. And it's always been a big part of my life. Um, and I had this second album brewing for about that same time, for about four years. And through life and circumstance, it, it hasn't sort of seen the light of day yet. But towards the end of the year last year, I saw a window of opportunity to to get it finished and just like, why the hell can't I do it now? Like, have the balls to do it. And 
a lot of it is my own sort of negative self-talk and and doubt and thin skin over opinions and all that stuff, which I've um, over the last kind of month or so I've been able to to get out of that um, that kind of pattern. And a lot actually has to do with Tony Robbins, to be honest. But that's a whole nother story. Well, and it's kind of relevant since he was on the show today. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but so, we did go to one of his events in November of last year. So anyway. And, uh, you know, his, his <laughs> sort of mindset and all that, you know, what he teaches you, et cetera. But, you know, to answer your question, the song that I released, uh, Valentine's Day, for, for a couple of reasons, uh, one is that a lot of it is about you and, and our journey and it's, it's really a tale of two hearts in two cities, as I like to call it. The song's called One City. Um, and it's about that time when when I met you and really started to fall for you and it was that like what if question um, and I, I was left with kind of two choices to leave Australia and leave my friends and family and, and comfort of that world, um, which, I, which I loved at the time um, and I still love Australia or, or take that leap of faith and see where we would end up and it's like why not now and I'm so grateful that I did and Fast forward, obviously we're we're married and uh, cherish every day that we have together. Mm. For my own personal side of things, the, the evolution of the song now for me, it's a meaning of uh, you know stepping into my own authentic self, my own you know authentic skin for the first time, and that decision, looking back, has informed or helped to inform a number of pretty crucial life decisions now, and it was that first why not now step that I took to buy the plane ticket and get my butt over here. Um, That was a chain reaction to everything else that's happened the last four years. So it's cool that it culminates in the release of a song and and a release of an album in March. Oh, how romantic is this? Valentine's and it's our one year anniversary and this love anthem song. I love it. it. It was kind of crazy though, meeting in Australia and just meeting briefly and not even really getting to know one another. And then having a friendship that grew across the ocean um, was was kind of unique and unexpected, I guess you'd say. There'd be times where we were Skyping and you were in a completely different day all the time, almost. And it would be, what, Sunday morning and we would have our squine dates, our Skype and wine dates. I fully endorse wine in the mornings. <laughs> <On Sundays. laughs> our, own for, our own form of church. Guy, but. Um, but it was just, it was kind of crazy. And, and this, this song, it is my favorite on the album. Um, but there are many others and I think it's important to note Richard, he writes the songs. He's an amazing songwriter. He performs the vocals. He plays guitar. He's super talented. He knows, he knows what he's doing. It's pretty, it was fun. I actually got to go to Australia too and watch him record in studio and, um, and I, I'm even I debut on this album. You do. You actually have a cameo as a clicker. I, the Amy click, is, they're called snaps here in America. Sure. Amy Amy <laughs> is the world's best snapper, finger snapper. There's a song called Playing Aces and she's she's on that. And just just to your point before about um yeah, I, I love songwriting, writing songs, playing guitar and, and all that. But um this album was definitely whereas the first album, um, called Ghosts, you can check it out, was very much sort of all my songs, very little input from other people, whereas this this batch of songs um, grew to become what they are through uh, a band that I was in and with the help of uh, my buddy Paul, Dave, um, producer Caleb. 
Shout and out to Down Under Matt Boys. as well. Yeah, so the, the songs wouldn't be what they, they – it was definitely more of a, a collaborative sort of co-write with this album for sure. So I, had, I just have to share this funny tidbit. So we, we hadn't seen each other in, what, a year. We met briefly, right, and what, were around each other maybe for an hour, just became mm-hmm. kind of friends. And um, Alana, my coworker, was there, and we just hung out. And then we just check in every once in a while and see how each other was doing via text. And then one day we'd Skype, and then Skype again and Skype again. And we did finally decided what was a year later, let's meet up. And so we're like, okay, where should we meet? Neutral ground. And so we met about <laughs> halfway-ish, which was Hawaii. And we had no idea how this was going to go. Um, but obviously, it netted out pretty well. So thank you for writing the song. I love it. And I love you. And we're going to have you on the show more. Love it. Thank you for having me. I love you as well. So you're going to come on the show again soon? Absolutely. I'd love to. If you'll have me, we can talk about some something Topical? Topical. <laughs> <laughs> like accents, maybe <laughs> Australian versus your wacky American accent. Okay, cool. Thank you for coming on. And here is One City. I'm getting closer than the closeness face. I'm fine with distance, not the miles that. Like a tired old rusty lock Refusing to open At some persuasion Watch the damn thing turn Right round One city to hold me down One city to send me free I'll find my own way round I'll find my place to be One city to hold me down One city to send me free I'll be all lost and found You'll be my place to roam I will still call Child with his first balloon looking to the sky. Lose your grip and act surprised as you watch it float on by. One city to hold me down, one city to send me Me free, I'll be all lost and found. You'll be my 
To check out Richard's music, go to richardgruer.com and you will see the first song that he just released, One City. The track is available there to listen to. You can also follow him on Twitter at Richard Gruer, Instagram at Richard Gruer, and that is G-R-E-W-A-R. Same with Facebook. Uh, Check him out. Follow the journey. I'm so proud of him and uh, he truly is talented, so I think you'll enjoy the music. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the show. Hit me up on social media to let me know what you think. I'm at Amy Jo Martin on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And I want to hear your Why Not Now moments so I can share them on the show. Just send me a note to whynotnow at amyjomartin.com. For show notes and other offers, you can visit amyjomartin.com forward slash why not now. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for my email newsletter for exclusive content and announcements. A big thanks to Rock Salt Music for all of the tunes by the talented John Coggins. And of course, a hat tip to Richard Gruer for editing and producing the show. I'll see you next time. And until then, why not now? <laughs>